Hi there, I'm Dan or Danny Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here we have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. This episode, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Jessica Moorman. Dr. Moorman is the Senior Director for Science and Policy at the Evangelical Environmental Network, which is based in Washington, D.C. We're both uh, from the U.S. South, and we actually both happen to be at Georgia Tech in the same school at the same time, but we didn't cross paths while we were there somehow. We didn't uh, meet each other there. Looking back, that was a really intense time in my life. I had a newborn. We had just moved to a new city. I wasn't really able to come into Georgia Tech every day, so I don't think I really managed to get fully integrated into the, the community there. But, you know, that's how it happens. Sometimes I'm very happy that I got to have this chat with Jessica now. We did record this a few months ago, by the way. There, I don't think there's necessarily anything too dated in here, but we did talk a few months ago. So just to let you know, if, there's, if there is anything that is a little bit dated in there, that is what is going on. Jessica talks about uh, faith and science and her experience of being part of these two communities, which from the outside, one might assume are disparate communities. They sometimes seem to be at odds of each, odds with each other. But uh, Jessica, she's not the only person with this message, but Jessica touches on how she thinks that uh, faith and science don't have to be opposite. They don't have to be in conflict with each other. And that was a, a big part of what we, we discussed, and we really got into it. Jessica also touches on how she believes that faith should be taken into account in diversity and inclusion efforts as people of faith can sometimes feel excluded from the scientific community. And just as a listening note, uh, there were some issues with the sound recording dropping out in a few places, but we've hopefully sorted all that out so that hopefully it is a smooth listen for you. This was really interesting and kind of a bit personal for me at times. Uh, I don't consider myself religious anymore. I, I did grow up that way, but that's not really how I think of myself these days. But certainly, you know, being in that community early in my life, I did uh, experience it. I did go go through it, and I'm some partly, at least partly, informed by it uh, in a not small way. I would imagine sometimes, but it's something that. I don't really know how to articulate very well here in the short space of an introduction on a podcast, and I don't really want to take away from this uh, really nice, excellent chat with by rambling on too much. So let's uh, we can just go ahead and get into it in, in a minute. But I really appreciated this opportunity to talk about that faith and science kind of intersection with Jessica, because it certainly touches on themes that I have seen in my life at various times. But yes, speaking of people who are really good at articulating this idea that faith communities and scientific communities or kind of faith-based or religious-based religious ways of thinking and scientific ways of thinking that they don't have to be in conflict with each other. They can be harmonized. They can be put under the same kind of umbrella. Uh, Jessica Mormon is obviously, as you're going to hear, is really good at articulating that Professor Catherine Hayhoe is also really good at articulating that, and I just want to say thanks to Professor Hayhoe for recommending that I speak with uh, Dr. Mowerman. That was uh, really nice of her to introduce us, and I think now we have gotten through all of the guests that uh, Professor Hayhoe recommended when she was on the show a while ago, so thanks to thanks again 
to Professor Hayhoe for all of those great recommendations. I'll have to have her back on sometime and she can give us a new list of people that we can go through. Okay, great. So let's go ahead without any more from me. Let's just go ahead and get into this conversation with Dr. Jessica Mormon. Here we go. Jessica, nice to meet you. We haven't actually met in person. Nice to meet you virtually. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, looking forward to it. This is Ella, Ella Gilbert, our co-host. So, hello. Hello, um, nice to meet you. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, so you got everything set up, got your microphone. You got like a real professional looking mic there. It looks like high, high yeah. quality. Yeah, hopefully it comes across okay. I'm still working out the kinks. Um, but uh, yeah, whenever COVID hit, <laughs> um, was able to up my tech quality, but <laughs> still having some tech mm. hurdles here and there. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, it sounds good to me. It sounds really you know, brilliant. Um, so it's like early morning for you, right? It's like nine or it is. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you both for joining late as well. I guess it's kind of later afternoon. It's not too bad. It's only 2 PM here. So that's pretty, pretty manageable, you know, (laughs) post meal, post lunch. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's nice and sunny here actually. Like the, we're getting to that part of April where it's like really, nice and sunny and this part of England, despite what people will tell you, like not every part of England is like gray and overcast all the time. This part is actually pretty sunny um, most of the year. So yeah, I don't know. How are, uh, how are things there? Is it warming up? Yeah. Things are warming up here in D.C. Um, we did have a bit of a cold snap, so had to put the jackets and hats back on um, this week. But it's a bit of a change for me. I grew up in the southeast, and so um, used to April being pretty warm. Yeah. And so uh, just just traveling about eight hours north of where I grew up, it's enough where we get um, some more of the temperature swings as the jet stream comes down yeah. here in the spring. And so I, it's still a mental adjustment to me, even though I cognitively know my body just like as soon as we get warm weather, I'm like, okay, spring, summer's here. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm right. always caught off guard. <laughs> that jet stream uh, idea is so striking, isn't it? Because I, I also grew up in the Southeast. I grew up in Georgia and so oh. you don't really, where were you? Were you in Georgia also? Or uh, somewhere near, near? I was in uh, East Tennessee in Knoxville, but then I, um, I was actually born in Georgia outside oh, of Atlanta okay. and All then right. marched my way down 75 mm-hmm. um, for college and then grad school and was at Georgia Tech for grad school. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's cool. I was just going to say that jet stream observation is really nice because growing up in Georgia, I don't really remember you know, feeling those kind of big shifts. But I lived in Kentucky for a little while and Fort Collins and now in Cambridge. And here you can really feel the other, the, both sides of the jet stream. It's very obvious, like which side of it you're on in those transition seasons. You know, you can get very clear jumps between, oh, this is, this is polar air versus this is subtropical air. Um, yeah. So that, it's a really kind of striking experience. And it just makes me think about what a good job that circulation does at keeping the two air masses separate from each other. 
Another little lovely rotating planet. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. It always helps to be able to feel it yourself. And I can't imagine in Fort Collins. Um, again, I've, I've always been on the East Coast. And mm. so uh, hearing from colleagues who are like, oh, yeah, April, May, that's our big mm. snow season. <laughs> I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fort Collins, well, it's about a mile above sea level. And the air is pretty dry. But yeah, the kind of October and April, I guess the way it was explained to me is that that there's a lot of moisture in the air. It's still cold enough mm. to form snow, but that's when you have enough moisture to make some proper precipitation. Right. So those can be the big snow seasons. Yeah, I remember the first October living there, we got like two feet of snow, you know, in one event and had to dig our car out. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's it's manageable. You know, we can live with it. And it's such a pretty place to live too. Mm. So maybe a good place to start. I was just looking at your Twitter bio <laughs> And uh, I am laughing a little bit because that might not seem like very in-depth research, but I don't know. I like to get my guests to kind of tell me about themselves. So that's kind of typically how I do it. I don't necessarily do a super deep dive into the person beforehand because I think it keeps keeps things, for me, it keeps it fresh anyway. I don't know. Um, so I uh, got in touch with you through Catherine Hayhoe. Catherine Hayhoe mentioned that you'd be a really good person to to talk to. And so thanks to Catherine Hayhoe for that recommendation. I really appreciate that. And uh, I was looking at your Twitter bio, like I said, and so it mentions that you're the senior director of science policy at Creation Care. And I thought maybe we could talk about some recent projects. What have you been up to lately with that organization? What does that what does that role look like these days? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think some people may be surprised. An organization like Creation Care, um, we're officially titled the Evangelical Environmental Network, um, having a position for Senior Director for Science and Policy may be a little bit of a surprise to folks, but it's actually really core to our, our mission at, um, at the Evangelical Environmental Network and um, protecting God's creation. That's what creation care is, is kind of our shorthand for, of being those good environmental stewards that um, Christians are called to be in scripture. And so our vision at EEN is for every child to have the hope and the expectation of a stable climate, and a pollution-free world. And that really centers the work that I'm doing. So I serve as an um, educator and liaison from our organization to the halls of Congress here in the U.S. And so um, I reach out mainly to our, our House representatives and bring that message that um, Christians care about the environment. We care about, we see how whenever we're not those good environmental stewards, that we as Christians are called to be, that it harms the health of, of people and especially the most vulnerable. Um, that includes, as um, I'm sure many of our, your listeners are very well aware of, of, of communities of color, of the elderly, children, um, workers who aren't as valued, who are working outdoors in extreme heat. And so we bring that our role as educators to Congress, to policymakers, is really helping make that connection between these are the, the health harms that we see from climate change, that we see from pollution, and let's work on some policy solutions that really address that. And so right now, we're really working on a range of different things that fall kind of in the buckets of one, defending life, 
uh, protecting God's creation, protecting nature, protecting the environment, and then also using those policies to create family-sustaining jobs, highways jobs in the clean energy uh, economy and the clean energy future. And so what that looks like is really supporting, for one, I love um, looking at the transition to electric uh, electric vehicles Mm -hmm. as an incredible solution, not only to uh, reduce carbon pollution that's driving climate change, but also to get uh, at the air pollution like PM 2.5 and other pollutants that are triggering asthma attacks in Mm. kids. Mm-hmm. and the population. So really seeing that as a win-win-win, as well as a win for new jobs. So that's one of our focus areas. We're focusing on reducing methane leaks um, in the uh, oil and gas industry, um, both through the regulatory process, as well as by uh, uh, encouraging the deployment of new advanced technology and innovation that can do that high-resolution, on-the-spot monitoring and detection of methane leaks. And again, that gets at um, of addressing a very potent greenhouse gas but also reducing um, emissions of VOCs that, again, cause really harmful health effects for people living in uh, on the fence line right there in those areas where there are methane leaks. And so also there's mm. jobs in deploying mm. that technology and capping those methane wells. So we're always looking for um, those those win-win-win opportunities, um, just as, as climate change is so often called a threat multiplier. Mm -hmm. I love to look at climate solutions as a benefit multiplier Mm. where we can really fight climate change, improve air quality that improves the health of of people across um, both locally as well as across the world and give those good high paying jobs as well in the clean economy. Yeah, I really like that idea. Yeah. (laughs) Benefit multiplier. Benefit multiplier. Yeah, that's really nice. I was just going to say that this work sounds like a really practical application of something that Catherine Hayhoe likes to express. And the way that she expresses that, I'll try to paraphrase it, is that when you are trying to think about climate action or approach climate action, a great place to start is to find common values. Like, let's start with the things that we all have in common and the things that we all can agree on that are important. And you mentioned a lot of those. You know, we want our kids, grandkids, to have a stable climate, a healthy planet to live on. Uh, we want you know, reduced pollution. We want them to be able to breathe and not have asthma attacks and things like that, for example. So that all sounds really positive, and it sounds like a practical application of that. So what I guess to get more specific, what does that look like for you? What is What does some of your, in the context of those projects you were talking about, you know, how do you encourage some of the actions that you mentioned? How do you encourage some of the conversations that you mentioned just to kind of, I'm kind of wondering, like, on this detailed level, how does that work for you? Yeah, well, you really hit the nail on the head. We we really search for um, bridging that gap between um, the need for climate action and those common values. And so, uh, uh, first, for me, really practically, with whoever I'm talking with. It involves first listening to where they're coming from, listening and asking, um, what are the things that you care about most, whether that's 
a member of Congress that I'm speaking with, what's what's really important in in their district, or mm-hmm. if that's with with church members, church pastors who I'm speaking with, what is the particular ministry field, the the people, the places you've been called to serve? What what are those? And then helping them connect those dots between the threat of climate change, um, extreme weather, pollution, etc. And so that that's kind of at that that bigger picture of what that looks like. But for me, I'm in constant conversation with um, members of Congress now in my role at EEN, as well as with different church members, church leaders, and really helping get that message across that as Christians, we need to rediscover and reclaim our biblical mandate to be those good environmental stewards and and helping them, again, draw those connections to the things Mm. they already care about and um, how if we don't take climate change into effect, we're less effective at those those things that we care about protecting or lifting up. Um, And so really practically, it looks like scheduling meetings with uh, offices um, and staffers on the Hill. Mm-hmm. here in the U.S. and in D.C., and it looks at setting up engagement opportunities for um, uh, for church members and church leaders to have these conversations. And it looks a little different now that we're in a pandemic world and everything's mm-hmm. gone virtual. It's mm-hmm. been, um, you know, helpful and um, in some regards and then more challenging in others. But um, in terms of especially engaging with uh, church leaders and church members, it's really the virtual world has really opened us up to be able to engage with with other people of faith who get it. who Mm. understand that connection from all across the U.S. and all across the world and really begin to um, put those tools, techniques in in place of how to have conversations about climate, environmental stewardship with their friends and family, which, um, as Catherine Hayhoe always mentions, the social science research that friends and family are the best messengers to bring Mm. in. So we really work to empower folks in our network to be those messengers. Yeah, that all sounds really positive. It sounds like the focus is on building relationships. You're building relationships and building a sense of community. And also, like you said, enabling people to try to build that same sense of community within their own families. And that's where these conversations can happen. It it sounds like that one of your skill sets or a skill set that one would have to have to do your job is the ability to facilitate difficult conversations, potentially difficult conversations. Um, So we identified kind of common values. Um, What happens if you do have a clash? What happens if you do have a place where, I can't think of a specific example, but if you do have a conflict of interest, right? Because this all sounds wonderful and lovely and I really like it, but there must be places where the rubber meets the road and like, oh, we can't satisfy both of these constraints. What are we going to do? Um. I don't know if any examples come to mind for you. It's kind of a, an open open question, I guess. But um, oh, absolutely, it's not. That. Yeah, it's it's not all rainbows and unicorns. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say that, um, and this may be a generational thing, but I will say that um, with the folks that I have encountered, there has been an openness to have a conversation, and I have experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, especially in um, the churches I've been a part of, the church leaders I've engaged with, and even staffers and members of Congress on the Hill, um, especially in private, they're they're hungry 
for information. <laughs> They're hungry to know what is the truth about climate change? What information can I trust? And again, those trusted messengers are, are really important, um, especially whenever um, talking with folks in person or, um, you know, face-to-face virtually. I think it's different whenever we're engaging kind of anonymously on social Mm -hmm. media and you can just drop these rage and hate bombs (laughs) with zero consequences. Um, (laughs) Ella looks like she was giving a very knowing look there, um, possibly having received some of those nasty messages. (laughs) Oh, just a few, yeah. Just a few. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely received those myself. And one Mm. thing that I've found really helpful is um, always to try and acknowledge um, the, for lack of a better term, the humanity of that person. (laughs) So Mm. often if I encounter um, someone, uh, you know, there's some people that you're just like, I'm not going to engage with this. But even just calling them out by name by saying, hey, (laughs) so-and-so, da-da-da-da-da. and again, trying to to bridge that gap and um, lead with civility um, mm-hmm. often can open the door for instead of bomb throwing back and forth, an actual conversation and uh, get and again, getting at that sense of what's your hang up? What's the specific mm-hmm. reason? why you disagree with whatever I'm saying. And then that opens the door to um, really addressing what that hang up is in a targeted fashion. And so that's what I try to do on social media. That's what I try to do in person. Um, I have, you know, I've been called a heretic (laughs) in church sometimes, but again, it's, it's always trying to, I always try to approach that with um, finding that bridge of civility. And a lot of times you may just have to wash your hands of it. You may need to, Mm. um, as it says in the scriptures, um, sweep the dust (laughs) off your sandals Mm. of that person. But I'm always trying to look at uh, the person themselves and draw that connection, even in the face of, of opposition. But again, so often though, when I do bring it up, I do encounter an openness. Mm. Um, and I think that is, and I, I'll speak about so often in both um, kind of I inhabit, um, I've inhabited for the last 15, 20 years, um, kind of one foot in the science world, my other foot in the church world. And sometimes I, I have to admit, I've just been hesitant to mm. to share the fullness of who I am in both of those places um, of mm. sharing that I am a believer with my science colleagues, of sharing that I'm a scientist with um, my fellow churchgoers. And, and that I've realized that that's more of an um, internal thing, that mm. hesitancy of expecting to receive a negative reaction um, from either place. And that's kept me silent. It's kept me silent of talking about science and church and my faith in, with my science colleagues. And again, what I found is once I was actually open, it was well received <laughs> on the most part. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's what's really true about talking about um, climate change, climate science in general, is and the social science research bears this out, is that there's that perception gap where we do expect to receive a negative reaction 
that keeps us silent and not talking about it. And whereas actually more people are receptive than you think, but the looming weight of all those trolls that we hear so much about, Mm -hmm. um, again, especially on social media that we encounter on social media causes us to kind of button up whenever we're talking with folks in person. And so um, that's where I've really over the past couple of years challenged myself just to be open and unapologetic and um, uh, try and have those conversations wherever it comes up and just have that courage to be like, you know what, if I get a negative reaction, that's okay. I'll, I'll move on. Um, but more often than not, it starts a really good conversation that leads to other um, kind of long-term conversations and beginning to open up uh, folks' mind about things that maybe I prejudged that they wouldn't be open to. And it, it sounds like you were saying before that you, you spend a lot of time listening to people before you kind of launch into what you want to talk about. So I guess for me, it sounds like that is really important because you would talk to those different communities in different ways about the same topic, but you would approach it in a, in a different, from a different angle. Um, have you found that that's, that you end up talking to say scientists about faith or, you know, your church going compatriots in a different way um, about climate change? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So in Georgia and Southeast Georgia, I mean, I grew up in a church community there, and this was, you know, now a couple of decades ago. But one of the things that I recall, and I was talking about this with a friend who had a similar experience, I don't remember there being that much of a conflict or that much tension between, you know, the church community and science at the time. I know that that clash or that tension has that's people's perception that they perceive that that tension is there. And I suppose there are certain narratives and certain voices that kind of bring that out and highlight that in certain ways. But that wasn't really my experience in that particular church community. You know, the, the, there wasn't a tension or clash between, you know, science and the kind of practice for lack of a better term. So you, could you speak to that a little bit? Because you mentioned that you like to push back against this perception. There might be reasons why that perception is out there. What does that make you think of? Or can you speak Can you speak to that area a little bit more? Absolutely. And actually, Dan, your experience um, is very similar to mine and really mm-hmm. resonates with mine. Um, uh, kind of that traditional clash between science and religion, especially the Christian faith, it wasn't really mentioned too much at all in my church community. But as as a young person growing up um, in a conservative community and in a church community, I was just kind of aware of it in the atmosphere. Mm. And I really attribute it to, um, again, kind of those, those messages that kind of picking up here and there, not from friends and family, not from my church. There was never a sermon on that. I could never really pinpoint um, uh, someone that I personally knew railing against Mm. the evils of science or how as a Christian you you should be distrustful of science. Actually, the opposite. I remember an eighth grade uh, science teacher really kind of um, offhandedly talking about the compatibility of how he saw 
the intersection between um, between science and faith, and just kind of offhand positive comments for the more, most part, even even things from my father. Um, mm-hmm. But it was enough that that kind of mainstream atmosphere that there is this. Uh, disconnect. There should be this war or conflict between science and faith was enough for myself um, to, as I felt um, really drawn into into the science world, drawn to study geology and ultimately climate science, that it was enough to make me hesitate and Mm. really question, um, can I be a a scientist and a Christian? And and so that's Mm. why just getting at that that mainstream perception and kind of dispelling that I think is really important because it, it does stop more folks from entering into the science world. And I think it's harmful, um, yeah. frankly, for the church as well, of uh, putting forward this false choice that you have to choose between uh, uh, being a person of faith and, and trusting science or going into a science field. And mm. what was really critical for me was in that moment where I found myself wrestling with, I feel this draw to study geology going into college. Um, this was at a moment whenever I was uh, had just finished up high school and was about to go uh, enter into college, having to decide what I was going to major in, study, and feeling feeling this draw to study geology. I was sharing this with one of um, my church youth leaders when we were on a mission trip that summer. And just like, I don't know if I can be a Christian and a scientist. And I don't know how studying geology, I want to serve God and serve people. I don't know how that fits into that paradigm. And he just was very patient. And when I kind of finished my, my spiel, he just looked at me and he said, Jessica, don't you know that I'm a geologist? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I didn't know. It, it was That's it great. was crazy. It was great. And I, I didn't know that there was a scientist in our community. I didn't know that, let alone a geologist in our church community and a leader. And so just having that mentor and that person kind of step in at that exact moment that I needed mm. gave me that courage that I was like, I can do this. And that kind of started this wonderful journey. I don't know where these stories come from. And and I guess on some level, it doesn't matter. You know, they kind of show up in culture. There's various political elements to these stories. There's various kind of perception elements to these stories. And who the heck knows where they come from? But at the end of the day, they are, um, we we can shed them. We can kind of like, okay, for some reason, there are these perceptions and ideas floating around about incompatibility and about what is supposed to be what clashes are supposed to exist um but we can we can shed them and kind of recognize our common humanity and our common interests and get back to the things that draw us together as opposed to you know some perception that we're supposed to be opposed to each other so that all sounds really lovely um and I'm, I'm interested that you had a similar experience as well and so did my friend that i talked to who's like i said is about um you know about my age roughly that she also had a similar experience um, I guess there are there are a few visible folks who identify as Christian and visible organizations that identify as Christian that do promote some things, which I think could be fairly called anti-science. And perhaps that's part of where that perception comes from. But it does seem to come from a few kind of vocal, you know, a vocal minority, it seems. And that's true with so many cultural issues, isn't it, as is the things that shape our narrative 
they often just come from the loudest voices. <laughs> they miss the subtlety and they miss the nuance of some of these conversations. And um, it just turns what is really a beautiful multidimensional thing into some black and white, you know, yes, no, up, down, binary thing when reality is so much more interesting than that. Um, okay. I just went off on a tangent there. You inspired me to <laughs> to do that. But No, uh, well, I was just going to yeah. say, that's exactly right. I mean, we see it mm. in so many elements of, of discourse in different areas. Faith and science is one of them. Uh, uh, you know, we're in this time of political polarization, I think, because of that, because of mm. the loudest, um, the loud minority on on either side of the stream uh, gets, uh, they're sucking up the oxygen in the room. They get mm. the clicks. They get um, the um, the prominence on our media. And mm-hmm. so that just invades everything. And mm. um, again, that promotes that that culture of silence of, of, and that hesitancy to talk about these things. Um, uh, again, whether that's, that's faith in science, whether that's climate change, whether that's social justice, all of that. Um, and so that's where, uh, uh, again, the more that I've found that, um, just as my mentor who, who shared, um, kind of the fullness of who he was as both the scientist and a Christian that gave me the courage and permission to step forward down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's kind of why I, I really, that's what has inspired me and gives me courage to be vocal because I don't want the next young person to, um, and young Christian who, or young person of faith who feels called into a certain area, but doesn't see those role models, um, to then kind of drop that passion that's been put on their heart. Um, and so I think it's just so important for, for us in the kind of that, for lack of a better term, silent majority to raise our voices Mm -hmm. and smooth that path, um, for people. Yes. And just as we mentioned a little bit earlier, there might be some genuine differences in, let me see, how do I want to say this? So, you know, we all have certain values and we might not, we might not weight all of those values in the same way, right? There might be some genuine differences in like, oh, actually I want to weight this value a little bit higher than this one. But I would like to think that on the whole people, especially if we start with relationships and start with, like we keep saying what we have in common, I'd like to think that we could actually be pretty decent at figuring out how to address those differences in valuation, those differences in weighting. Um, I think we probably can do it actually. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is all great. I am uh, really enjoying this, this conversation. Um, and do we want to talk about your, I don't want to cut, cut us off. So if there's another thread that you're inspired to follow there, let me know. Otherwise I thought we could talk about your kind of pathway through science and to, to where you are now. I thought that could be an interesting area to explore. Sure, absolutely. I think the um, the only thing that I'd mention on this thread is again, you mentioned there are um, organizations out there, and there is individuals out there that you can really point towards. Find the YouTube clips mm. of them um, really going at this is why science negates religion, or this is mm. why you have religious leaders spouting very anti science things. We can find all that on the internet, but I, I love the, um, uh, there's so many organizations out there also that are bridging that gap. The evangelical environmental network is one of them, but one that was really influential to me 
was um, the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, AAAS. They have um, and have had for nearly two decades now um, a program called the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion and have been a convening space for um, kind of that that pursuit of, of knowledge with a capital K, truth with a capital T mm. of what is that intersection of ethics, philosophy, religion, and science to get that holistic understanding and bringing communities together, which has been uh, really incredible. So I just want everyone to know that there are organizations out there and are even within our science societies um, who are advancing these conversations, which I think is really powerful. That's, a, that's really good to know. And I've also been reading some books lately talking about the topic of uh, of shame and like the the experience, the whole Brene Brown thing. She's got lots of nice YouTube videos and books and things. And she talks about how shame is this feeling of not belonging or of not kind of fitting into the box and the opening up the conversations and the way you're talking about and kind of trying to get away from this narrative of you must fit into box A or box B, you know, getting away from that kind of narrative and allowing for more conversations can get away from some of that shame, right? It can get away from, because I guess a shame inducing experience is if you see, oh, uh, this is box A, the community I'm supposed to apparently be a part of. But if you feel like you don't fit into every, you know, aspect of that community, you can feel that sense of like, oh, do I really belong here? So if you do the kind of broadening work that you're talking about and invite more people in, you know, have, have a way to have like a bigger variety of people in, in the mix where you don't have to fit this strict checklist uh, to be part of the conversation. Um, that's a good way to build, build community. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say it's also really important in that of advancing goals with justice, diversity, equity, and, cl- and inclusion, of uh, making sure that religious inclusion is uh, in a part of that. And that's what I've learned, especially with my engagement with AAAS's dialogue on science, ethics, and religion, that it, it's not just for uh, making white girls from the South like me feel comfortable <laughs> going into science, but um for a whole different range, especially with lifting up, making sure that there's a pathway for first-generation students to get into science, for making sure that um, uh, uh, young people of color get into science who um, often have spirituality, religion is, is so core to their identity, just like it has been for me, is um, feeling, again, like they don't belong or can't be that bring that fullness of themselves um, is uh, can also be counterproductive if in our DEI activities that if we don't include religion in that and faith in that uh, can also be another barrier hmm. for achieving the diversity and inclusion goals that we have in science. That's a good point because to feel like you might be able to join a community, you need to see where you might fit into it. And if you have a perception that, oh, this is a place where, you know, religion's not allowed, if that's important to you, you might feel like you, oh, I wouldn't fit there. It might make you feel shy to even consider going in that direction. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's, it's not one that I have heard many people make. So I, I think that I appreciate that you brought that up and uh, brought that into the conversation. Ella, do you have any threads you wanted to follow up on? I guess it just, what you're just saying sort of speaks to that idea of being a visible role model. Because if you can't 
see someone that looks or is or feels like you in a visible place, then you can't imagine yourself being in that place either. And I guess Hmm. we often talk about that in the sense of um, gender equality or racial equality, but we don't necessarily often talk about that in the context of faith. So yeah, it's a really interesting one to bring together. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a a new dimension for me that should have been obvious, but that I think is going to be good to talk about more going forward and good to bring up more going forward. Let's go back to Knoxville. So so you were born in Atlanta, you said outside of Atlanta. Um, There's a big hospital there that's like, I'm just curious, out of curiosity was... I don't know, was it at the big hospital where they do like loads of births or a different one? I think it may have been. I think it very well. I was right there in that area, whether that's North Side, I think it's called. Yeah. North Side, I think it's called. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ella, this is like a factory. There's it's like a giant hospital and there's like loads of babies born there every day and just uh, right outside of Atlanta. Uh, so you're born there, and then were your family, were they, I guess they were living there at the time, and then moved to Knoxville, is that right? Yeah, so um, my my mom and my dad both grew up in Tennessee. Um, my mom in East Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. My father in West Tennessee, outside of Memphis. Hmm. And then um, when they got married, they went down to Atlanta, had all my sisters there, and uh, but were really yearning for the, the smaller town town life. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, when I was four, we moved back to uh, my mother's hometown outside of Knoxville. And um, actually, there's a, there's a bit of a science story there of why um, my family landed or my mother's side of the family landed in Knoxville. My, my grandparents, my mother's mother and father, they grew up out west in Wyoming and mm-hmm. Colorado. Yeah. And um, my my grandfather uh, ended up pursuing engineering and mm-hmm. uh, in the in the late 40s and 50s became a mechanical engineer, got his PhD from uh, Northwestern in yeah. outside of Chicago. I think I know where this and, is going, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And um, he kind of had, he was a lucky guy. He had a pick of once he finished his PhD, where was he going to uh, 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 become a professor at, and he got an offer from the University of Tennessee outside of mm-hmm. Knoxville to um, help start the new nuclear engineering department there mm-hmm. because Oak Ridge National Lab <laughs> was yep. opening up after the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. And so um, he decided that, yeah, that sounded like a good opportunity to help get the kind of um, civilians, Adams for Peace kind of initiative off the ground. And so um, science science brought my family to to Knoxville yeah. into it's East Tennessee. Huge effort, wasn't it? I think sometimes I still don't know the full scope of just how big of an operation that was. Because you hear so many stories like that of, of science family. Even now, there's still a huge science presence, you know, in that part of, of the country. And uh, yeah, so that that was your grandparents, one set of your grandparents. And then, so your family then kind of stayed in that area or they, they were around there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sorry, yep, I interrupted. Stayed, Just stayed in keep you're, you're doing great, and I interrupted for no reason. Get, feel free. Oh, to go ahead. no worries, <laughs> no worries. But I will say one thing that was kind of to jump. If we can do some time jumping forward, just like you, I didn't. I didn't really even growing up. It's kind of like whenever you're in a, 
a fish in a pond and you don't really under, mm. fully appreciate the pond you're in. I didn't appreciate the how massive um, the National Lab effort was until time jumping coming full circle. Um, I did a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowship where um, they place uh, PhD scientists into um, uh, executive branch agencies, departments mm-hmm. here in the yeah. U.S., and um, was placed at Department of Energy in the Office of Science in one of the offices that that works very closely with Oak Ridge mm-hmm. and their scientists. And um, I, it wasn't until getting out of the area, getting out of East Tennessee and coming to D.C. and being in that office that I really kind of appreciated the massive scale of the work being done um, and how that's blossomed, like just so grown in in diversity of um, where they were really focusing on like so much of the climate science and climate modeling um, that has been developed through the national lab system came out of trying to understand the fallout of nuclear radiation. Mm, (laughs) And the Human Genome Project came out of that office I was in trying to understand how did radiation impact human health, the human genome. And yeah, yeah, it's just really fascinating of how um, from that that origin of, and I, I'm an isotope geochemist too. Mm-hmm. And so just seeing how isotopes have kind of birthed out, you know, human genome, our, our climate models, um, uh, and then... Um, even environmental cleanup and uh, remediation has just been, yeah, it was really fun to kind of discover all of that kind of the origins and history of how we are now with a lot of the things that the national labs and beyond are doing. Yeah. So to kind of go jump back in time again, so we were at your grandparents and then what about your folks? What were they up to? Yeah, just kind of um, living the uh, suburban small town life. Um, mm-hmm. I have two sisters, and uh, where I grew up, it was a wonderful place to grow up. My my mother was a physical or is a physical therapist. Um, my dad um, was uh, an insurance agent, but he was also um, and this was really critical to me. Um, really uh, having a heart for caring for the natural world. Um, he is, um, he's a hunter. And Mm -hmm. so he would always try and get us girls to go out hunting with him, um, out into, uh, out into the woods. Um, we didn't, I don't think we, (laughs) we didn't latch onto it as much as he Mm. was hoping. Um, (laughs) but yeah, growing up in East Tennessee and the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, um, and with my, my dad as an avid outdoorsman, I was, I was never at a, at a loss for opportunities to just get out in nature and just appreciate it. And, um, it's a really, really beautiful state. Yeah. Yeah. It's so lovely. And, um, he would never call himself an environmentalist, but I, one thing that um, really struck me was he, he shared um, that, you know, hunters, outdoorsmen are among the, the best conservationists out there because mm-hmm. there's a real care for when you do it properly. Again, there's lots of examples <laughs> of <laughs> where that's not the case, but kind of your everyday um, hunter 
has an appreciation for making sure that their the, the sport continues, that that there's land conservation. Um, and so that really, um, that him saying that really struck me and stuck with me. And um, especially kind of thinking through how there is real truth in that. And then, and then now, um, especially as we've been talking about finding common values and bridge building, um, what we found is that uh, realization is really powerful with reaching out to communities that may not be receptive to necessarily the environment, the traditional environmentalist Mm -hmm. message, or may not start with being motivated to act on climate itself, but are motivated by, by conservation, by land preservation. And, um, being able to show how if with continuing to warm our planet, how that puts those those things you care about at threat um, mm-hmm. is a real uh, great entry point into um, beginning to look at climate solutions. Absolutely. And to react to that a little bit, I'm not putting this on your dad at all, but the, when you said that he would never call himself an environmentalist, that brought to mind all of the, there's a lot of cultural baggage especially in the south with that word you know it conjures up this image of oh here's some elite snobby person who goes around trying to make everybody feel bad about what they're doing there's that that's their perception that there's that's a perception that exists and especially for a lot of southern people they feel quite to, to overgeneralize i am overgeneralizing just to flag that up that gives people quite a strong aversion you know they again, they don't want to feel that shame. They don't want to feel judged. They want to feel understood and seen and heard. So to start with shame and to start with, let's make people feel bad, um, seems to quickly get you to a place where it's like, well, a lot of people in the South especially have an aversion to that and will we'll push away. You're making a really good point there, especially when trying to understand um, why, like, why don't people get it? Why don't people see mm. that, um, especially with with climate change, that this is a, a crisis? And it mm-hmm. does so often come down to the um, a cultural clash of identity. And as you were saying earlier about not feeling like you belong in a certain mm-hmm. group. And... Um, or that you have to change your values to to act People on get it. defensive about it, yes. don't they? Because environmentalism, like you were just saying, has this connotation either of being someone from some elite telling you what you can and can't do and yeah. doesn't understand your position and your values and whether that's you know some elite person telling me, a working-class person, what I can't do. Or, I mean, in, in the UK, I think the perception is, is a little bit different of the word environmentalist. But it's all yep, about sacrifice. It it's about guilt tripping. It's about you have to give this up because otherwise, you know, this will happen. But I don't necessarily think we, we have to move beyond that because it's not about sacrifice. It's about change. And if we make these changes, it will actually be better. Coming back mm-hmm. to this, this idea of the the benefit multiplier, it's not just about sacrificing, you know, your burger and chips to use a good solid mm. British uh, example, mm. um, it's it's about making everything better for everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell a funny story that I think um, really captures kind of again that that feeling of um, 
of disconnect is as growing up, I was not allowed to watch Captain Planet. Me neither. Oh my goodness. I wasn't either. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask a question. What's Captain yeah. Planet? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it Do is. you want to explain? Sure. Jessica? It is a fantastic kind of early 90s cartoon that was on the airwaves. Um, uh, growing up and it was about it was it's a really beautiful kind of picture and I think for a lot of like millennial Americans kind of our introduction to um, environmentalism but it was a, a group of, of five kids there's a cartoon a group of five kids from across the world um, who uh, they got these magic rings that represented like earth wind fire water and heart Heart was a hmm. very important one because hey. compassion. Yeah. Um, and important. when their their powers combined with their magic rings, Captain Planet would appear, especially whenever they yeah. saw some like company polluting, some some environmental degradation, and Captain Planet would come and save today when those five kids came together and combined their powers. Um mm-hmm. But one of the themes, you know, there's always the the villains throughout there. And one of the villains was like a poacher. And so mm. showing the worst, the absolute worst of um, hunting. And that's what really got to my dad of, oh, they're giving hunters a bad oh. name. So you're not allowed to watch this. And so I'd sneak, <laughs> I'd sneak on Saturday mornings and watch this cartoon. And, you know, he, I'd hear him coming down the stairs and I'd quickly change the channel. Like change the news. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but I think just switch even. It over to, hurry, switch it over to G.I. Joe. Yes. Yeah. yeah and so I'm, Dan, I'm you had the same. To watch that instead of, I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch, you know. Disney or things that were really corporate, but I mm, think not being able to watch like Planet Defenders, <laughs> uh, whatever it was called, Captain Planet, sounds um yeah quite different to most yeah people. I can relate to that. Well, it it was it's tied up. I mean, that is kind of a to overgeneralize again. That is kind of a Southern experience, at least of a couple of decades ago, of the the perception of environmentalists as being not constructive, but just kind of shame people who just went around shaming and blaming and inducing guilt. That perception was big. And there were a lot of people who, you know, understandably couldn't, didn't want that in their lives. <laughs> like even if there was some good point in there somewhere, they didn't want that kind of energy in their lives. And you can kind of understand wh- why there might be some pushback against that. So, yeah, I don't know what got us culturally down that path in terms of you know, the, the folks who forged some of these environmental movements. I mean, some of that panic that they brought to it, some of the some of the messages of guilt they brought to it. I mean, I'm again, I'm going to overgeneralize, but I can see that coming from a place of realizing just how bad it is, right? Being really shocked and being really like, oh my gosh, this is unprecedented and horrible. And there's a big problem. We need to let everybody know right away. And for some reason, the instinct there was to go to, to guilt. And the instinct wasn't to go to we need to calm down and bring the community together and identify values. That seems like it's taken a lot longer. You know, you're, you're now doing that work. Other people, Catherine Hayhoe is doing that work, but it took, there was, there's been a long lag of getting to that place culturally. Yeah. And I, um, I think, I mean, that's the trial and error process because it is a problem hmm. and there is a hurdle to get over um, the 
the idea that it's not a problem, that this isn't something that that we should care about, or you know, on the list of world ills, it's very low on the totem pole, hmm. and um, and and so again, I can understand like that this was the tack that was taken, and it and it has been really, um, uh important and groundbreaking in really opening people's eyes to there is a problem whenever we don't Mm -hmm. steward the environment well and um, where it it harms uh, biodiversity as well as human health. But then, yeah, it also alienated people at the same time. And so, um, I don't know, just trying to have a lot of grace for that. But um, recognizing, mm. I think there is a bit of a strain of an idea out there of like, well, for the folks who don't get it now, just, we don't need them. We're just, we're just moving mm. through. Um, we're going to take the folks that we have, just mobilize them and forget, um, anyone else who's not on board as a lost cause. Mm. And mm. I, I just, fundamentally disagree with that because there are mm. such clear ways of, of bringing there, there, there's fruit there. There's fruitful ground to bring more into, um, into the climate movement. And maybe it's not where they identify as being a part of the climate movement, but being a part of the, the solutions movement for whatever reason, mm. um, uh, they connects with them. Um, and, and one thing, conservation is a really, um, key entry point into that. One thing I always like to point out is kind of, um, the history, especially for, um, conservatives in America and the Republican party has a really strong, um, history of conservation, um, and being champions of conservation, um, for the last hundred plus years, especially with, um, Teddy Roosevelt and starting the, uh, um, national park system of even um, one thing I, I discovered with uh, kind of stepping into the policy realm, George H.W. Bush signed the Global Change Research Act, which created our nas- U.S. National Climate Assessment and started making climate a focus throughout um the, the federal government here, which now Joe Biden is leveraging for a whole of government approach to, mm-hmm. to climate change, but brought global change to the forefront of a, a 13 federal agencies and more. And so tr- just trying to point back to um, those, uh, uh, again, role models or, or folks that kind of conservatives identify with of this isn't um, antithetical to your values or um, uh, your history even um, Mm -hmm. of people you identify with. It's just kind of been forgotten or drowned out. And uh, so trying to, again, remind people of those things. Yeah, that's a really good point. So one of the threads that that brings to mind, um, you know, one of these books that I I read, and I I talk about it too much on the podcast probably, was this uh, Merchants of Doubt book by Naomi Horeskes. And, you know, she ties a lot of the uh, misinformation and disinformation that's out there in the climate conversation, that she ties a lot of that with evidence and documents and stuff to a well-funded effort tied to like a handful of scientists um, who were involved with things like um, making cigarettes seem safe when they are not and dismissing concerns about the ozone layer and things like that. And in her book, anyway, she distills their motivation as far as she could tell 
down to they had such a strong ideological feeling for um, no government control, no big regulations, no, and they were so on board with with that, with pushing that away, that in her view they were willing to compromise their scientific integrity and just do whatever they thought was necessary to stop big government regulation. Um, and I'm not expecting you to have like a you know, I'm not expecting you to speak for this entire thing. This is a big, complex topic. But do you? How do you encounter encounter and counter specifically that resistance of? Well, we don't want government coming in to push us around and to tell us what to do, right? Because that is a a sentiment you will find in the conservative population, and uh, I imagine you you must confront that in some way all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why um, that distrust of government, distrust of regulation, that. Mm-hmm. Um, not only influence those scientists at um, at those companies to then compromise on the science, but also has made um, the um, conservative community in the U.S. so susceptible to misinformation, mm-hmm. um, whether that's from a, a kind of a their political ideology, or even from um, a faith perspective as well, of having that that distrust of government that what has just made it uh, rife for them to um, accept those narratives. And so that's one thing mm-hmm. I also try and keep in mind is, um, uh, as we were talking about with Captain Planet, where's the heart? <laughs> You've got to have the heart. How, mm-hmm. how can you have compassion for people yes. who... Um, yes who you may label as climate deniers or climate skeptics. Why don't Mm. they get that? Well, that's because they have been the recipients of that concerted misinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we, we need to have different tactics and messages to, um, to counter that because also as scientists, we, I think we've all through that trial and error process have discovered that it's not just hammering people with the facts that's going to change minds, but it is often, again, those solutions feeling like Mm. I've got to embrace, uh, grow government and embrace big government solutions, Mm. um, to fight climate change, uh, I don't like that. So I'm just going to deny the science itself. Mm. Um, and so that's where we really point to different different solutions that may not be regulation focused, but that are market based, that are uh, either partnering with industry, which, again, can be like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Let's stop there. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who have got us into this mess. But um, there's a lot of businesses and industries that can be incredible partners as well. And so really highlighting those approaches. One thing that that our group at, at the Evangelical Environmental Network kind of really highlight, um, and again, there's no silver bullet policy that will fix everything, but I think a really powerful tool in the toolbox is um, a carbon fee, putting a price on pollution um, that dozens of countries have done across the globe um, mm-hmm. that really brings that it's a market-based mechanism that yeah. is essentially, you can consider it, I think, a user fee, which is not as <laughs> polarizing um, idea uh, within uh, conservative politics as necessarily a tax, but a user fee, if you want to pollute, you're going to pay to pollute. And then giving mm-hmm. that um, those revenues back to 
and this is what we support, giving those revenues of that carbon fee back to low-income and middle-class um, mm. households. And then, yeah. um, you know, at some point, uh, uh, you know, there should be, I, I feel like there should be a cap. Um, the wealthy may not need that that revenue, that rebate back. And, and mm. then let's invest in that clean energy infrastructure with those revenues. And so getting at um, a pay-for, um, which is really is one of the big sticking points in the current conversation around President Biden's American Jobs Plan of advancing clean energy infrastructure. Doing a carbon fee helps pay for the the clean energy future that we need. And uh, having that dividend scheme makes sure that um, it's not uh, the um, low-income and middle-class families bearing the burden of, of mm. doing that. And so that's really gaining traction with, with a bipartisan community, as well as with um, companies and industry recognizing that um, it's something to get behind. And so that's, that's a solution that mm. I often will bring to um, uh, uh, folks who are uh, against raising the size, increasing the size of government, mm. because there's there's ways to do implement those things without creating um, a, a new bureaucracy, et cetera, for that. And so I think it's really important to explore, to hear people, meet them where they're at, hear their concerns. And it's like, let's, we can develop policy around that. I think that we're um, just as, as people, we've got, we're very uh, uh, innovative and have a lot of human ingenuity. Let's put our brains together and, and and try and work through this. Yeah, that's really well said. I would really love to see the U.S. get back into like a leadership position on climate change and climate solutions. And I would really love to see that happen in a way that is more genuinely bipartisan and is more genuinely that gets that that captures a lot of people's values and finds that common ground. I think that would be really exciting to see. Um, and quite the polar opposite of the previous administration, which um, that was that was really difficult to see. You know, just we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but that was a really unpleasant four years um, to watch that happening. Yes, it does seem uh, like Biden's trying yeah. to make up for lost time, though, from the outside like at least. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I agree. The last four years very tough times, but, um, yeah. I really appreciate that. I mean, even just the, uh, the feat of within the first hundred days of Joe Biden's presidency, having a global leadership summit on climate, just mm. even the logistics mm -hmm. of getting that together really demonstrates just how much of a priority it is for, for this administration and mm -hmm. is really, really heartening to see. Uh, I mean, we, we're at a point where we we have a window of opportunity, um, yes. that it's really important to take care of, especially as we recover from the pandemic, having that mm -hmm. opportunity of not just to rebuild the status quo, but to yes. really um, build in a way, rebuild in a way that gives that healthy future for ourselves and for the next generation. And there's a clear mm -hmm. model with um, the Recovery Act after the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Mm. There were specific clean jobs, clean energy provisions that went through in that recovery and stimulus effort um, that mm. have paid incredible dividends um, over the last 10 years that have really, especially with in incentives for um, uh, 
the expansion, market incentives, business incentives for the expansion of clean energy. That's what's really helped drive with that mm. little bit of a push, drive that uh, market-based transition that we're, we've seen yeah. over the last decade of renewables, solar, wind, mm. becoming some of the, the cheapest electricity generation yeah. out there. And so um, we've got an incredible opportunity yeah. right now that um, mm-hmm. we can't miss. Um, not to say that this is the our only shot. I don't believe that. We're going to have to <laughs> continue to do the work um, after this period, but we are just so well positioned um, to do that. And mm. I don't know, I'll just tell a little story. It was actually on my, um, uh, my second birthday was the day that James Hansen testified before Congress about mm-hmm. the threat of global warming and climate change. And I think back, oh my goodness, if we had really back then, <laughs> I won't say how old I am, you guys can figure it out though. Um, but 30 plus years ago, if we had really mm-hmm. taken that seriously, where would we be now? And then I look at my own um, uh, uh, son and I'm like, okay, we missed that opportunity back then to really get serious. We can't miss that opportunity Mm. now because his future matters so much to me. Yeah. And those opportunities don't come around that often. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's a really good way to put it. I I wanted to just touch on one thing that you mentioned. You mentioned the carbon tax or the kind of carbon user fee. I read a, a nice way to frame that in a way that folks who might identify as conservative um, may respond to because you know the the idea of the carbon tax at first you you might hear the word tax and go like oh gosh more scary big government stuff and the way to reframe it uh, one way to reframe it is to say well no you know uh, when you use carbon you're polluting in a sense you know this is going to have negative impacts on people living right now and in future generations and a way to frame that is to say well surely you as a conservative person don't just expect somebody else to clean up your mess, right? Like you wouldn't do that, would you? You wouldn't just you wouldn't just make a mess, cause some problem, and then expect somebody else to take care of that. Like you want to be the person to, you know, clean up your own issues and to clean up the, the things that you might put out into the world. So, I thought that was such an interesting way to to frame it, and and the fact that it's market based, like you said, is interesting because the argument there that I understand is that you're saying, well, the market just doesn't know about carbon. The market doesn't know about climate change. The market can only respond to you know, what's happening right this instant. I'm not a policy person or an economics person, by the way. So you know, feel free, everyone, to disregard this. This is just me talking based on stuff I've read. Don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, the, the market doesn't know about climate change. It doesn't know about environmental damage because that's not built into the price. Uh, I think in economics, they call these things externalities, you know? So we need a way to inform the price, to tell the price, like, no, no, this hamburger is not uh, $5, it's actually $100. Or I'm not saying that the price of hamburgers will go up to $100, but I'm just saying like the price doesn't, hasn't captured everything that this really costs, uh, that this hamburger really costs. It doesn't take all that environmental damage into account. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I think responsibility is, is such a, is, is a really powerful message in this. And um, I, yeah, I frame it as it's being socially responsible as well as fiscally responsible. And, and you really touched on the social responsibility of the externalities. And I mean, someone's paying 
someone's paying for those carbon yeah. costs and who's paying yep. it? Not, not the polluters, but it's us. <laughs> it's all of us. It's the next generation and we're paying for it with health costs because of mm -hmm. um, the health harms from carbon pollution and the other toxic pollution that does come from burning fossil fuels and from traffic emissions. And, mm -hmm. and we're, we're paying for it with, um, you know, as we're seeing more extreme weather, we're, we're paying for it with the loss of people's homes. We're paying for it with mm -hmm. the loss of people's lives and the loss of people's businesses and livelihoods. And so that social responsibility aspect, I think, is really important. And again, just as you said, you clean up your own mess. That was a message that my father drilled into me and mm -hmm. just being personally responsible for, for what you're doing. And we live in a, a, a society and a system where it's hard for us as individuals right now to get away from using fossil-based energy. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. um, I think it's more than reasonable and fair to expect that um, uh, putting that user fee on on polluters. And then it's also fiscally responsible. That's what, another thing that I really like to drive home is that, again, um, when we look at uh, prevention and mitigation versus the cost of responding to natural disasters, I think it's a range of for every dollar you spend on mitigation, carbon mitigation and prevention activities, you save um, four to seven dollars of the um, response recovery from natural disasters mm. and extreme climate fueled extreme disasters. Um, yeah. So what, let's go back to your pathway. So you said you went to undergrad in Georgia. Was that also Georgia Tech? For your undergrad? No. So I was I was actually just across the state border at UT University of Tennessee Chattanooga, okay, which yeah. um, was a little little college, um, fantastic place to be. I will say that if you're ever in um, the Southeast U.S., go visit Chattanooga. It's one of the most beautiful um, little towns for like a day excursion <laughs> of mm -hmm. mountains, river, and uh, some really good restaurants. So I was at UT Chattanooga. Yeah. Study I there? studied um, geology. Mm -hmm. So I did become a geology major. Nice. And then um, it was, I then tacked on chemistry because I, I yeah. wanted to become a geochemist and an isotope geochemist. And um, honing Crap. in on that was actually a really, really pivotal moment, not only for my sci scientific career, but my personal career was um, kind of, yeah, circling back to my story of not n understanding necessarily how geology would lead to kind of filling, fulfilling the calling that all Christians have to, to serve God and love your neighbor. It was in that moment when I was in science class in one of my geology, freshman geology lectures, where we were learning about paleoclimate and learning about using isotopes in mm. ice cores and beyond to figure out what climate was like in the past. And it was just in that moment where um, I had uh, an epiphany of um, the 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 scripture where uh, Jesus asks, um, "What is the greatest commandment?" and He says, "To love God and to love your neighbor." That came to mind while I'm learning about isotopes and paleoclimate. It came to mind, and again, made that clear connection between again that the uh, that climate change impacts the most vulnerable first and worst folks who are least responsible, both globally as well as 
um, in all of our communities, um, in our American communities, in Western communities, and the profound unfairness of that really just struck me. And that Mm. was when I was like, okay, I'm going to focus on climate science. I'm going to focus on paleo climate. (laughs) And um, that's how I'm going to fulfill this calling that we have as Christians to to serve others. And Mm. that that set me on that track where I was like, okay, chemistry, going to learn about isotopes. Um, And that took me down to um, grad school at Georgia Tech, Mm -hmm. um, researched under um, Kim Cobb, where we research, we do corals and speleothems in in Kim's lab. And so I was on the speleothem side of things. Yeah, she's Um, she's really inspiring. She's really a cool person. Yeah, Yeah, I worked at Georgia Tech for a couple of years, Um, 2011 to 2013, I was there. I think that was a little bit after you were there, right? I, I seem to remember looking this up. I don't think we had any yeah, overlap there. We're, yeah, it was kind of in that same time frame, but you know, it's such a big place hmm. that who who did you work with? So I came in with Taka Ito. So he moved from okay. Colorado State to yes um, to Georgia Tech. You know, at that time, and I was there for a couple of years before um, wrapping up and moving over here to the UK. So do you Fantastic. know? Fantastic. Did you have any? So you did have some overlap with Taka? I and, did. Yeah. Uh, yes. Oh, so we were there at the same we time. We were there. <laughs> <laughs> we were we were probably both just in in the lab, hmm. um, stuck in there in the lab, not <laughs> uh, <laughs> able to escape. <laughs> were you in the? Okay, there was a corridor. This is way too specific, but there was a corridor with um, like uh, his first name's Hussein. He was one another one of uh, yes, yeah. Okay, I was in the other corridor. He was in the um, corridor. Well, there you go. That's why we talk. Yeah, that's why we didn't see each other. We're in the wrong. Which I will say, it's very. Uh, I felt like that building we were in really segregated people. Um, but yeah. I was around the corner from Taka's office, um, across from uh, Marcial Talafer's lab. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's one, really funny. one corridor over. So I'm sure we probably passed each other in the hallway and stuff, which is weird to think about. That's right. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love uh, it. <laughs> yeah. So that was your that was your grad school with Kim Cobb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep. where and would you go after that? There was a yeah, scholarship. At some so point. yes, I did um my postdoc at um uh, a couple places as you know, one is want to do. Um, and so was first at Johns Hopkins, um, with, um, uh, uh, working in a, uh, a lab where we did, um, worked on triple oxygen isotopes. So again, I was just such an ox- uh, an oxygen isotope nerd and that was the new thing on the scene. And so, um, was, uh, got a fellowship to go there. Um, and, uh, and that was really, uh, it, I was living in DC at the time too. So I was commuting up to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I, um, had, had just had my son. He was probably five months old mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, the, the lab work to do triple oxygen isotopes is, is very intensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, goodness, working on, um, uh, carbonate oxygen isotopes. Um, and especially I was doing at Georgia Tech, I was doing a lot of water isotope work. That stuff's just plug and play. Um, but to do triple oxygen isotopes, it was, you know, you're on a, a three hour cycle where, um, prepping the sample and then, um, you know, you had about, 
you know, a, a 45 minute break in between each sample when you had to get back on there to do it. Mm. And um, it was it was really in that moment that um, I remember sitting in the lab and it was just a very stressful time, very tired, a new mom also mm. in a new city doing a big commute. And I will say that my lab was so supportive. They were just really, really wonderful. Um I was working with um, Naomi Levin and Ben Passy. They are just so fantastic. But it was just kind of in that moment where I'm sitting there, I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, it, was, it was a moment where I lost, um, maybe I lost my love mm. for being in the lab and doing the science itself. And, um, but also a time of rediscovery of why I even got into climate science in the first right. place and, um, kind of, yeah, those, those nights alone in the lab were really helpful of really kind of honing in on why, why am I here? What am I doing? Where can I, um, I got into this field to, to help people, to serve others. Like so many of us scientists do of have, having those really altruistic Per, deeply personal reasons to get into science, um, let alone from the fascination of this incredible world we live in and wanting to know more about it. And I was just like, I I felt like I was like, I need to get in the solution space. Mm-hmm. I I live in DC. It's an incredible place to have um, to have influence and be able to work in the solution space. And so. That was when, yeah, I kind of decided that I was going to step out of academia, which was a really, really hard thing to do of kind of leaving um, that research community, laying down some dreams that I had had in research and um, but feeling really strongly a need to switch towards uh, to policy, to solutions and especially recognizing that the 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 unique world I kind of inhabit again with having one hat um, on with science, another hat on with with the church, and um, one thing that also led us up my family up to D.C. My husband's a pastor, um, and so he was uh, the college pastor at our church in in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. and um, we we decided that. Uh, kind of with that that two body problem, we were going to use it as a two body opportunity, <laughs> and that wherever I, we felt this this strong calling up to D.C. and that he was going to start a new congregation, a new campus of our church, up in the D.C. area, and I was like, I'm going to get my postdoc in the D.C. area. I got mm. really close. I got to Baltimore, <laughs> and right. um, and so we had started this church and kind of now like really taking on that role of that I had as a church planter and a church leader and recognizing that my community really, that community really needed to hear that message about how climate action is actually very central to our faith and acting out that role that we have as um, environmental stewards and caring for God's Mm -hmm. creation and everyone in it. Um, And just sort of seeing, I've, I've got this unique uh, message I can bring and wanting to really step into that. And so that that led to a, you know, again, kind of the the postdoc. <laughs> um, mm. It took a couple years to get from that point to where I am now. Right. Um, but that yeah, was, was always kind of the goal of making, trying to get to that point. And so was mm. uh, just really blessed to have opportunities come up at the right time right. that kind of slowly step me towards this. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask. I imagine that I can imagine that being a scary process of turning away from this academic research track, which is difficult. It's somewhat well worn in the sense that a lot of people in that academic world are familiar with it and they kind of know what that looks like. Um, but it's actually a pretty minority experience to just be in academia and stay there, right? Like there's sort of some survivorship bias in a way of the people in academia are just familiar with it. So they like, well, you know, you do some postdocs and then you find a permanent thing somewhere. But actually there's loads of people who they have to take their skill sets and their creativity and all the amazing stuff they do. And they have to, they, they find other things to do with it. And I'm really impressed with the fact that you, for you, it was a decision. You know, you said, I feel this calling to go in this particular direction. So I'm really impressed with that ability to to pick a direction, to feel strongly about it and to go. Did you imagine you must have relied on some community support and some friend support in that time? Because in that scary transition, um, is that fair to say? I'm just imagining, because I think for a lot of people, for better or for worse, they get some sense of support from the academic community, which can be part of why it's hard to imagine leaving it. So it's really helpful if you do have those other communities, you can say like, okay, well, maybe now in this phase of my life, I'll lean a bit more on this community as I figure out what my next step needs to be. Can you speak to that? Yeah, Is that fair? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, you know, leaning, leaning in, especially on my my church community, as well as on the science policy community mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is really robust here in the D.C. area of um Again, it is helpful to have um, folks who uh, who had already stepped down this path to oh, have yeah. that grid of what they were doing. And so um, part of that was the AAAS Science and Technology Policy alumni and robust community mm. that's here. I had had um, uh, actually one of uh, uh, colleagues at Georgia Tech who had become a AAAS uh, Science Policy Fellow. And so um, reached out to him of uh, how did you get involved with that? Um, and so really recognizing that there um, is a, a breadth and diversity of different jobs outside of academia for PhD scientists was really helpful. But I will say it was one thing that was really hard about um, making that transition and making that break was the feeling, especially with being a woman in science, being part, realizing that I was now part of the statistics (laughs) of Mm. the um, female scientists who have left research academia. And that was a really hard, um, uh, kind of barrier to push down on and not to feel that shame and guilt like I'm Mm -hmm. letting down um, all of women in science by not continuing down this path. But again, yeah, kind of seeing others who had done it and seeing the impact that they had had in policy and seeing the need um, just for scientists to be engaged in in policy at all different levels um, was, uh, again, kind of gave me a new grid, a new focus and purpose, and even that sense of self-worth. Um, mm-hmm. That was another thing that I had to come get over because a lot of my self-worth was tied into how serious of a scientist am I? How, how, how many papers have I published? (laughs) What is my CV? And that was a really critical, um, kind of realization for me. And that's that process too, was that I was more than my CV. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you're more than just 
some number like a paper count or citations or like all of that stuff is kind of nonsense <laughs> in a way. It's just, it's not that fundamental. Um, I, I think there's a an unfortunate tendency for science and academia to focus way too much on those metrics and to put too much value in them when, you know, really you have to be more, uh, a bit more human than that and consider a person's full humanity and their impact. And uh, yeah, anyway, I could get on a soapbox about that, but I'll, I'll not do it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for speaking about that because I know there's lots of people who have made that transition or facing that transition. And I think we don't talk about it enough when we don't normalize it enough. Um, and in fact, I, I really appreciate the chance to speak with somebody who has made that kind of transition. And I'd love to talk to more people who do this sort of transition as well. Um, so it's because I, I want to normalize it. I want, you know, we, the, the um, how did somebody put it? You know, traditionally academic departments might say something like, and I think we're getting away from this, but they might say something like, oh, well, do you want an academic career or do you want an alternative career? No, no. Academia is the weird alternative career. <laughs> That is the weird alternative, right? Um, yeah. So before we go into the little, it's not really a lightning round, but, you know, it's kind of quicker back and forth. Anything you want to talk about, Ella? I want to check in. No, I think Maybe we've covered a lot of really interesting and important topics. And to be honest, no no further, no yeah. further comments from me. <laughs> I've been quite quiet, actually. I've yeah. been really enjoying listening to your experiences. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've really liked this conversation. Um, so to get you out of here in a reasonable amount of time, we can go through the little set of questions about what you've learned. So what is something that you learned about science? So, you know, when I say learned, I just mean something that surprised you or something that worked in a way that, you know, when you were first thinking about going into a career, something that surprised you about how that works. No, it could be a small thing, it could be a big thing, it could be kind of whatever comes to mind. Ooh, kind of like with the science profession or the science enterprise or kind of fascinating science facts itself. Ooh. Oh, I like that distinction. Let's do both. Let's do like science fact-wise and let's do science as an enterprise. Yeah, yeah. Let's do both. Sure. Yeah. So, and this was kind of what drew me into why I'm a giant isotope nerd, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I just love the elegance of um, of isotopes, of just this small mass difference, this extra mm. neutron or so something that just births out like so many different discoveries and mm. how you can just figure out so much about, um, uh, again, this incredible world that we live in and its history from just this tiny mass difference in, in isotopes. I just find that really fascinating. And that's what kind of really hooked me into, um, uh, paleoclimate as well as um, isotope geochemistry, just absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, and then uh, kind of on the profession side, again, it's kind of... Um, do, do you mind oh, if we, go ahead. Do we end if we drill down into that just a little bit more? Yeah. So I thought I would mention, I'm sure you know more about this than I do. There's a scientist at the British Antarctic Survey, Mike Meredith, and there's loads of others who do isotope analysis for oxygen for kind of ocean circulation. So mm. they use it as a way to, um, I got, and I was on a cruise where we collected some samples for this kind of analysis where you use the ice oxygen isotope ratio to work out 
how much of a given water sample is kind of meteoric, you know, just from the rain, from precipitation, basically, versus how much of it is from glacial runoff, um, how much of it is from sea ice processes, that sort of thing. And because they all have different isotope fingerprints, right? Like you, you get some um, evaporation and it's easier for the lighter um, isotopes to um, ascend <laughs> To, to get up into the upper atmosphere and then the heavier ones tend to fall down. So you get this fractionation, right? And some of them stay up, some of them go down. Yeah. So that, that's my only kind of really, that's my only direct experience with that sort of thing. And uh, uh, it, it is really impressive, isn't it? Just the, how much you can learn from these tiny, tiny differences. I, I love that. Um, yeah. And yeah. what you just described, that's my jam. That is mm. my jam of mm. like isotope mixing models and you know, where's the water coming from? What type of water is this? How can we get back to like provenance? And um, even just kind of hearkening back to my geology days of isotopes being um, so critical for like volcanology and um, also uh, in uh, astrophysics. I don't know if it's astrophysics, but astro something, planetary sciences mm -hmm. of figuring out the provenance of different asteroids and meteorites and yeah. is this an early earth chondritic one or something and you, you use all those stable isotopes to figure out what type of um where in the universe this <laughs> this rock came from and i was just like oh my goodness it's just fascinating yeah. um sorry i could geek Absolutely. out on this for a really long time <laughs> no it's great this is a very nerdy podcast you know that's <laughs> that's what we do do you, do you want to talk about science as an enterprise yeah, yeah. And this was really a realization coming from my time at um, Department of Energy and the Office of Science is just how big the scope of the science enterprise is. I had a very narrow, and it may just be because of what um, kind of what fields that you're what opportunities are available to you as a paleoclimate mm -hmm. scientist, which can mm. get pretty niche, but all of us get really niche in, in mm. what kind of opportunities we think are available to us. But I was just really, I was really impressed with the scope of, um, uh, of the scientific enterprise itself of not only universities, the national lab systems, and how that's also replicated um, internationally with different lab systems. And then um, seeing so many different scientists um, embedded in, in the federal government as well, both at departments and agencies, as well as in Congress, and then discovering all these um, scientists who are in state and local government as well. And really working, like still leveraging their scientific training. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really kind of, uh, uh, the science enterprise is very big. They call it an enterprise, at least in the federal circles for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so just kind of seeing that that large scope um, was uh, eye-opening and mm -hmm. really kind of heartening <laughs> as yeah. well. Yeah. It's good, right? There's, it's good in terms of it's healthy that that enterprise exists. And also there should be some jobs out there. <laughs> That's good. There should be jobs. Yeah. Yeah. How about uh, policy? What's something surprising about policy now that you've had uh, a, your focus on that world a little bit? I imagine you've been surprised by some things in that world. Yeah, I think 
the policy world, the pace of it is the complete opposite of the research world. Um, mm. Of uh, and so that was that was something I had to uh, kind of overcome. Of I was like, I want to have as much information as as a researcher as I can to fully understand whatever process I'm studying to quantify the uncertainty. Da 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 da. da. And in the policy world, it really is. We need your kind of best, whatever best information you can give me right here, right now, because if you miss this meeting, then it's like you don't exist. It doesn't matter how much you know about it because we've already made the decision and we're moving on. And so um, that also highlighted to me the the need for um, more scientists in policy Mm. that um, because decisions are being made at a rapid pace. And even though I may not be able to give the full picture that I want to give as a scientist to a certain decision, having that scientific background um, is really valuable um, to bring to the table. And Mm -hmm. um, especially as we are just seeing such a rapid, I mean, the pace of technological change and scientific discovery right now is just incredible. And people are making decisions based on that. And so, um, and a lot of folks um, who are really smart uh, people, but just don't have that scientific training, making decisions on things that have big technical elements to them. Mm. We need more scientists um, and STEM trained folks uh, helping guide those decisions. Good. Oh, yeah. I like that. How about community building? What's something that you've learned about community building? For community building, I think it's really having a, for me, seeing people as individuals, Hmm. seeing just um, the person in each person (laughs) and seeing them as an individual and just um, giving uh, that, that care and love that we all fundamentally crave. Um, And so that's, I think, been at the heart of community building is just really kind of uh, uh, seeing each person for who they are and that um, unique individual that they are. Yeah. Seeing the humanity there, seeing the person, you know, seeing behind the the things which don't define us as much as we we think they do. Uh, How about bridging across communities? With something you've learned about that, kind of connecting to it. We, we've already touched on this a good bit, but I thought, I, you know, if there's another thing that surprised you or another element that you wanted to bring out there. Yeah, I think it's just really um, a real realization that we do have, people do have a lot more in common than we often at first glance think. And, yeah. um, you know, sometimes it may be hard to, to find that common ground, mm-hmm. um, but it's worth uh, doing, doing that legwork. And, uh, yeah, we do have, there's a lot more that connects us than separates us, um, as a whole. Uh, that's beautiful. I like that a lot. That's all from me. Do you have any, uh, anything else, Ella, for you? No. Feeling all, all right? Good. Yeah. All good. How about you, Jessica? Anything else you want to talk about? Feeling I think right? that that has nice. it covered for me. I've just yeah. really enjoyed chatting with you both. Thank you so much for, uh, inviting me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jessica. It's been really lovely talking to you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I'm really glad to get to have this chat I, uh, with, with you specifically, and also just in general. I've really enjoyed doing the podcast during the pandemic because um, I think I'm more social than I maybe realized before, and it's really nice to have have chats, <laughs> have more conversations. Yeah, I know there there are things that you know is. T- 
hard and as terrible as this season has been, there are definitely things that it's like, oh, I'm going to take this and continue this out of the pandemic that I probably wanted to have stepped into mm-hmm. um, without it. So just trying to, yeah, find those, take those silver linings where you can find them and carry them forward. Good. Thanks so much for your time and for being open and for talking with us. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Again, thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate the invite. This has been really wonderful. Excellent. Thank you, Jessica. There you have it. My conversation with Dr. Jessica Moorman. Thanks again very much to Jessica for stopping by and for talking with us. Thanks to Dr. Alec Gilbert for being an excellent co-host as always. And here's some more credits. Thanks to Sean Williams Page for editing services. Thanks to Lillian Blair for audio engineering consultation. And thanks to all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing, however you are accessing this. I appreciate it. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for the suggestions. You can find the podcast at Climate SciPod on Twitter. And you can find me at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter. Dr. Gilbert, you can find her at Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a with a Z or a Z. And Jessica Moorman, you can find at Jessica underscore Moorman on Twitter. Okay, so I think that's that. That's everything. Take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>